welcome back to episode 15 of Extraordinary Jews, the untold story of the from neurodiverse population. This is Debbie Ginsberg of Organize You for Life, and I am so excited. We have a fantastic guest with us today, and we're going to have a very interesting conversation. So let's get started. So Robin Penderis received her degree in child psychology from Tufts University in Boston and then moved to Paris in 1989. Robin worked for 10 years as a fashion buyer in Paris and then subsequently raised her two children while managing her husband's career as a professional golf player and instructor. Robin spent the next eight years perfecting her organizing skills in her own home, and then she came to realize how passionate organizing had become for her. During a get-together with some friends, Robin had her aha moment and decided to start her business in 2006 as a professional organizer in France. Since then, Robin has worked with clients of all ages from three to 90 years old and in several European countries and in the United States in person and online, as well as adults with both a neurotypical and neurodivergent brain. Robin also completed an ICF-accredited 12-month program comprised of five courses through Coach Approach to become an ADHD, ADD, and of course, we know that means Attention Deficit Disorder Hyperactivity Coach for adults. So you can go to her website, which we will be announcing um, a little bit later. Robin is an active member of several organizations, um, AAWE, Association for American Women in Europe, FAWCO, Federation of American Women's Clubs Overseas, and a cancer support in France. Um, she's also part of the GNWEL, which you know I'm a part of. It's the Global Network of Jewish Women Entrepreneurs and Leaders. So I am thrilled to uh, welcome Robin. And we have a conversation today that's pretty fascinating, and we haven't discussed it, and I haven't heard people who wanted to discuss it, and that is the topic of ADHD in midlife. And I think it's um, it's really amazing to, to talk about parents who have ADHD who raise kids that have ADHD. So I would ask you, first of all, welcome, 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 Robin. And I Thank like you. Question, and that is... What do you think has become the biggest challenge for parents with ADHD while raising kids who have ADHD? That's a great question, Debbie. Um, first of all, thank you for having me here and giving me this platform. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited about our talk. Yeah. So um, what is the biggest challenge for parents? First of all, I think it's important to say that I... I'm a parent with a child who has ADHD and my husband also has ADHD, but I do not have ADHD myself. So I'm coming at it from, um, from more of an observer's point of view in terms of dealing, you know, dealing with children and young adults, young adult children. I would say, I think, especially today, I would say the greatest challenge, this might surprise you, is actually to not um, fall into the trap of thinking that uh, taking medication for ADHD is the be all and the end all. There's something that we like to say, we say pills don't teach skills. And, you know, I think that's a really, really important expression that I learned when I was doing my, my, my coaching classes, my coaching course. And I think that's very, very valid. Um, I think it's important for the kids to know that and the young adult children to know that, and also for the parents as well to know that. 
and that there needs to be this kind of multidisciplinary approach towards ADHD, whether it be for adults or for children, that includes coaching, that includes cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, that includes a whole bunch of different structures put into place so that the person can be the best version of themselves. But medication is just one of those things. Do you teach cognitive behavior therapy? I use that in my in my my curriculum. Yeah, it's a- I, I know that's why I brought it up. But I no, I'm not a therapist. I studied child psychology when I was in college. Um, but no, I, I haven't studied that yet. But I, I know that that's an important piece of the puzzle. So just to clarify, um, you don't have to be a therapist. I looked it up. Mentors are invited to teach cognitive behavior therapy. Um, What happened in my case, which I've mentioned before, was that my daughter-in-law, who's a neuropsychologist, had been the one to say you cannot uh, avoid talking about someone's emotions when they're dealing with these symptomologies of ADHD or autism. So we always discuss the type of things that I teach. She goes, ma. You're teaching cognitive behavior therapy. I said, what's that? So she says, but that's what you're doing. So I researched and I went, oh my gosh, I'm teaching cognitive behavior therapy. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm so intuitive, you know, and I really had never read about it. But when I switched to teaching cognitive behavior therapy fully in a curriculum, my clients went, wow, what a difference. So that's, and you are correct because we just spoke about this where we could come across clients who have uh, co-occurrences that used to be the word comorbidity. So they have symptoms of uh, the first initial symptoms, which might've been diagnosed, not diagnosed, but then they have undercurrent of issues such as anxiety, depression, things of that nature. So I really would like to speak to about the ADHD mother. I, I feel for the ADHD mother and I wonder, you know, how does she pick her head up off that pillow every day to deal with the struggles? It's a good question. Of course, as I said before, I can't speak from experience, but I can speak from observing both my clients, who most of them are ADHD moms, and also my husband, who is an ADHD dad, <laughs> Right. you know, dealing with, dealing with a child who's ADHD. Yeah. Um, and I see how it shows up every single day. And I just, you know, it's important to know that one of the times where the symptoms of ADHD become the worst are for a woman is uh, when we become mothers because of the fluctuations in our estrogen and how our hormones affect the dopamine in the brain as well, too. So that's a very, very important time already psychologically, right? It's a very important time in our lives. But then you lop on the ADHD and you know all the challenges with people who have um who you know who have challenges with their executive functioning um and so i think that's why it's especially difficult and my heart also goes out to these moms um who actually need to be diagnosed and i think this is an important time to say that very often women in midlife have been treated for a while for anxiety disorder for depression uh for these other kinds of these other kinds of, I don't want to say disorders, but for other things, other issues, when in fact it's the, often it's ADHD that's causing the depression and causing the anxiety. And so there's very, very many cases that I've come across of mothers who think that, you know, why aren't I as capable as my friend? Why aren't I as, why aren't I functioning as well as the other moms? Why can't I take care of my children as well or as efficiently? Why aren't I as organized? 
And it's actually, you know, the ADHD is actually the underlying issue, but they either don't know it or they haven't been evaluated or they're being treated for something else. So they're being misdiagnosed. So I've, I've discovered that a lot of moms, and we talk about this quite a bit, and I'll explain why a little bit more in detail, but we discover a lot of times that moms only get diagnosed when their kids are diagnosed and they went, oh, oh, I know those symptoms. They're, they're so familiar to me. And so then they get diagnosed themselves and all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, because what, you know, they've been living a certain way, but then when they get this diagnosis, they begin to feel almost more overwhelmed because like you said, they're starting to tune in to all these situations. The, the One of the things that um, I deal with and I see a lot is the negative talk, the, you know, that negative self-talk because, you know, I've explained this several times, so I won't go into too much now, but primary emotions, secondary emotions. So secondary emotions are those, those lifelong uh narrative stories that you might have spoken to yourself you had an experience you maybe didn't do well as other kids you recognize it because we do recognize in ourselves the differences you had a teacher who said really this is the best you can do you bring home a report card your parents just simply make a frown well your narrative is so negative that it creates the lowercase t trauma and it lives with you inside because you've you've literally let that negative talk infiltrate and you hold on to it because we we don't know how to let go so fast and like you said skill sets are key so the biggest obstacle that i find to executive function skills and i want to talk about executive function skills i find are your emotions because the very thing that we deal with is that when people can learn the language of emotions and they could actually face them and work their way through it they're able to get to their achievable goals. Now, with that said, I would love to talk about whether or not you deal with executive function skills. I have not found teaching executive function skills to be all that successful unless they have continuous buddy system, people to you know, push them along. And so therefore, when I speak to clients, I say to them, no, you will not always be on time. No, you will not always organize your room. No, you will. And so we, and I don't believe in calendars. I don't think they work. So we have a different approach to it. I'm not saying we don't teach executive function skills on some level. Um, what do you find about executive function skills and have you teach that and what has been? So, so that comes in more um, when I uh, work with somebody as a professional organizer. And less as an ADHD coach, because the 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 premise beside, behind the ADHD coaching is that the person comes up with their own solutions and their own systems, and I help them to connect the dots by understanding and creating that awareness about what's going on. So, whereas within the context of a professional organizer, if I'm hands on and I'm actually working with the person, then I can sit down with them and say, "Where do you write your to do list?" Um, how are you going to set up your space to exercise? Um, all these things that are connected with, you know, finding a life that fits that person to be the best version of themselves. And it's very intertwined with how they use their space and how they use their time. But that is mostly within the framework of my professional organizing and not with the ADHD coaching. Um, but I do find it's interesting that you talk about executive functioning, Debbie, because very often with clients who are have already been diagnosed with ADHD women, I say to them, do you know that emotional regulation is actually an executive function? And if I tell you nine times out of 10, 
their mouth drops, their jaw drops. And they didn't know that. And it's such a big part of women, especially women who are having these fluctuations with their menstrual cycles and with you know childbirth. It's such a big issue that it really does need to be put into that context and need to be taken into consideration, both yep. for the person, for the person who's helping them. And the important thing is to be their cheerleader, which I find is a very important aspect of it, where I teach them about, you know, you have value, you have worth. And to say negative things to yourself where you're stuck in the past, let's move to the, to now and talk about what we could do now. We don't talk about suppressing emotions. We talk about, like I said, working through them. Um, but, the, but for people to feel that sense of self-esteem, self-confidence, self-compassion, it is so lacking in women. I mean, all. All people of ADHD, I mean, you specified the ADHD woman. I work with 20 to 40 year olds and most of them are single. And it is really amazing how few people. And I mean, I speak to people who are not in our field and they say that's post COVID. And I said, no, I've looked mm -hmm. into it. It has, it ha there's so many different elements to why people are not proud of themselves, feel respect for themselves, believe in themselves, love themselves. And it's not just COVID related. It has to do with a shift, believe it or not, in the way um, materialism, economics, okay? So in economics in uh, years gone by, many, many years before our generations, just being able to get the food, to be able to collect food and have food for your family was a humongous need. So you were busy, busy, busy. Well, you were so focused on that, that was all you had to deal with. Everybody was in the same boat. And then you move on to uh, materialism. All of a sudden, the economy changes and you have, you live among people who have all that they want. They're just buying, 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 and you can't. So then all of a sudden, you see this difference and you feel this shame and you feel this like inadequacy because you're poor in a rich society. So interestingly enough, percentage-wise of people who are in this category um, is greater in industrial nations that are well-to-do because if you're not in that, you know, middle class, upper class, you, you feel it. So then all of a sudden you have these different emotions and less feelings for yourself because you just don't feel you fit in. So of course that doesn't, that's, you know, my, yeah. So, so that, you know, that doesn't explain everything, but it certainly is fascinating that that came before COVID. Yeah. You wanted mm -hmm. to say yeah, so thanks. So related to that, um, when you're talking about shame, uh, I think what really resonates with me is that we as women tend to express our love by putting food on the table. Okay. I'm generalizing, of course, but I think that this is important. When you take a woman who has ADHD and you think about all of the different steps of the process to get a meal on the table, a home-cooked meal, let's just say, okay, or something that she's proud of and she's going to, you know, show her love. From the moment that she has to think about what she's going to buy, and then she's got to make it to the supermarket, yeah. and then she's got to decide what she wants to buy, and, and there are all these steps, and there's so many um, roadblocks that can get in the way of this of these women, you know, being um, putting the food on the table, just simply, and being able to express their their love and their their productivity 
and you know their feelings in this way and so just because you use that as an example i think that's a perfect example of adhd women and what their challenges are in midlife or just all the time actually and especially as a mom so i I just wanted yeah i wanted to add to that the the woman who keeps the sabbath and all the yom tovim so then it's even a bigger uh sense of pressure which is you know a, a difficult challenge for sure and and you know, what I'll say to someone, like I just had a woman I spoke to and she was saying, I, I just can't get my laundry done. I can't get my closets done. So I said, wait, let's stop right there. Can't get your laundry done? Pick up the phone, call a company that'll pick up your laundry and do your laundry for you because we should not feel that shame. Okay. So today I myself, I, I'm not considered neuro atypical. I'm considered neurotypical, which I laugh at for many reasons, but um, because I think we all have issues. So if I find that I can handle an upcoming meal, I'll call the butcher and have them deliver what I need. I'll, you know, put together something as simply as possible, the simplest. And the answer to it, the difference is, is that I don't feel the shame. I say, so, okay, I can't do it. Big deal. But Again, it goes back to the pressure that these women put on themselves because they feel that this is a this is a symbol of everything that they want to present to their spouse and to the children and all that. Whereas my children have grown up, well, they actually got a lot of food. My husband now, he looks at, you know, he doesn't complain, but he's he gets the simplest little chicken with a little spices on it. And I come, that's it, you know, and he got used to it actually. So um You know, Debbie, if you if you go back to if you go back to what you're saying about the narrative and people's self-talk, which is a very, very important element in, in women in midlife and, and women with ADHD, women with it, with any kind of neurodiversity, when you think about the years and years and years that they've gone through, the childhood and you know, as a teenager, of not being or feeling not capable of doing the easiest things, which is the nature of ADHD right? The very complicated things, people with ADHD, they love it. They sink their teeth into it. The more complicated, the more complex, the better. But the simple things, doing your laundry, going shopping for food, all of these kinds of things that seem very banal to other people and very simple, people with ADHD are, are have trouble with. It's a challenge to them. And so that kind of shame and comparing yourself to somebody else and feeling less than is so, so long ingrained from childhood and other people's reactions. And that's what, that's one of the main reasons why I encourage people to get an evaluate, to get assessed and to get a diagnosis. Even if they say, oh, I know I have ADHD, I have all the symptoms or whatever, you know, but just do it and wrap your head around it. And then you can move on, I feel like. And then you can start to deal with the emotions, like you're saying, and the, the have better self-talk. So in other words, you're saying, if I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly, that if you're in denial, that you have the diagnosis of ADHD, you therefore may not seek out the full help and skill sets that you need to learn. You feel that way? I don't know that women who don't seek out assessments are in denial. I don't believe that. I think that they know either deep down or they know because now there's so much information about it. I just think they either don't want to be bothered or maybe there is a part of them that doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to suck it up or doesn't want to admit, you know, that they have this diagnosis, they have a disorder. Um, I wasn't thinking in that way. Um, I wasn't thinking about people in denial. I was just thinking about people who just don't want to go, just don't want to go to the bother of getting an assessment. I mean, in the United States, 
it can be thousands of dollars. Yeah, and you can have to wait. And add it and it's out of pocket. There's no insurance. It's between six and eight thousand dollars. And very yeah. honestly, the when I beg my um parents to please have their child evaluated because I need to, it's better if we knew the co-occurrences, because those co-occurrences is what makes them tick a little differently than the next guy. The parents go, Great, I'll spend the money. But the backup to get an appointment with the neuropsychologist is huge. You can't even get appointments. So we talk about this also because I had a therapist um, who was a therapist actually on my other podcast. I have a podcast for our Orthodox and then I have a podcast for the world at large. And she was saying that even among her therapists, they're not trained to deal with this. So that makes it even you know, fewer people that have the capacity um, I spoke to her because she was a little taken aback by the mentorship concept because she had not heard of it. And we speak about that big gap, how someone has to come in and fill that gap. But we also have to be very careful because we're not therapists and I don't play the role of therapist. And that's huge because we, we can only deal with what we call the primary emotions. We don't go back into that trauma thing. So, right. and I think that um, there have been many times when I say to clients, you're too stuck in the past, so you need a therapist. And if you want to continue with me, great, but you need a therapist. So even getting a therapist in America has become a humongous challenge because so few are disciplined in how to deal with this type of brain. And it is different. It functions differently. And so therefore, you know, unless they're up on the newest neuroscience and, you know, psychology, they're not really appealing to the, this particular population. And in terms of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a neurochange practitioner. So what, what does that mean? That I am lear very learned in the neuroplasticity concept of the brain can change. And that's huge because we know how to change the brain. What are the catalysts? And that is very important for my clients because if you don't recognize that repetition, put, taking a person out of their comfort zone is one of the major ways to do it. Therapists will validate, but that's not good enough. You have to push the person and not always say, yeah, that's okay, that's okay. So I couch it. That's great, but now we're going to do this. <laughs> so now you have homework and you're going to have to call a friend or you know, they're like, no you know so uh, <laughs> i push i push i push i push because they realize and i explain to them all the time if you don't practice and you don't you know do that you're not going to change so you have to really be truthful with yourself and say authentically do i want to change or do i want to be stuck like this because that's really where it's at yeah and i think that's important with with adhd as well in, in women in midlife is that um you know, midlife, we still have a lot of years ahead of us, <laughs> right? You know, well, life can be wonderful if you choose to to grab and grab hold onto it. But there are steps you have to take. But, you know, and, and that that takes a lot of it takes a lot of courage. It really does. But oh, okay. I think that I really believe that the first step is to just, you know, is to accept that you have a particular challenge because I feel like if you don't accept it, then you can't deal with it on any level. So 100%. you're not able to move forward. Yeah. yeah. 100%. So I, I feel for you. I hear, I hear, I hear you. I so hear I, you. I'm, I'm all about teaching about the self first 
you must learn about yourself. So I talk about, you know, the self-esteem, as I mentioned before, and, you know, self-confidence and the compassion. And I say to them, because I'm dealing with the people prior to them having relationships. So I said, before you get into a relationship, you need to have the pillars of the foundation for yourself. Because when you get into a relationship, if you were not to have self-esteem or self-confidence and your spouse says to you, but you are great. And you keep saying, no, 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 no. I'm not great. I'm not great. Well, there's just going to be a long a period of time that they'll continue to talk like that before they start to jump in on the bad wagon. You're right. You're not great. And that's going to ruin the relationship. And I think that's also the other aspect is to learn communication. We recognize now communication is huge. We're seeing a very large amount of social anxiety. And I've mentioned this on other podcasts where we have uh, 15 million Americans alone who have social anxiety. And that is paralyzing. Because if you're too afraid to speak to another person, okay, then you're losing out because we know friendships are important. How do you get married in that situation? So there's, there's so, it's so comprehensive and so deep in terms of all the different things that can come up and, and all the things you need to learn. It takes time. So, um, so I can speak firsthand of having a relationship with a person who has ADHD mm-hmm. and it's not easy. There are a lot of challenges that I've been living through for the past 35 years since I've been with my husband, not knowing in the beginning that it had anything to do with ADHD, um, but tearing my hair out. <laughs> and so, you know, for me, knowledge was power when he got assessed, even though I had you know, suspected it for a long time. Um, but when he finally did get the assessment, I felt like then he had the knowledge and I had the knowledge and we could, it, it wasn't an elephant in the room anymore. And we could both come to terms with it and see and think about how is this affecting us in our relationship, the two of us, and how can we make this work for us and not be fighting against us, not be causing a problem. Right. And it also, it also helped us, you know, to have a lot more, a better sense of humor about mm-hmm. it so mm-hmm. instead of you know me pulling my hair out because it's you know okay. there are things that he didn't remember you know <laughs> mm-hmm. or situations where he was awkward you know socially and whatever you know whatever it is that has to do with the particularity of people with ADHD or his particularity with ADHD um, I feel like that because I have the knowledge now that I can be a lot more accepting and understanding so that's added a, a layer to our relationship that I that I'm grateful for yeah, so what I did, wanted to mention before is that um, my some of my clients got to the point where they I transitioned them through many stages, and they were they had really perfected, you know, being the best version of themselves. And then they turned to me and they said, "Could you help us find a shatchan?" And that's the matchmaker for you know their religious young men. And I said, "I'll look around." So I was looking around, looking around, and I had been a shachin myself years and years and years ago in a very large yeshiva. And um, I just said, "Okay, I'll, I'll try to find it." And it was so difficult, very difficult to find people who would be specifically in this neurodiverse population and be a shachin. And what ended up happening was, as always, to be a shachin, you need a very large list of people because, right, you can't just put, oh, you're this, you're that. No. So I ended up having, I, it's it's on the podcast, we have a dating series with this phenomenal shachin who, who has psychology under her belt. 
She understands. She's both a neurotypical and neuroatypical. She so understands the neurodiverse brain. And the things that she has spoken of is that it's that communication which you found, you know, many years later, because once everyone knows what they're dealing with, so we know in the neurodiverse brain, they can understand themselves. But when they're presented with somebody who has other symptomology, they're a little lost because how do you deal with their symptoms? So she really guides them, which is phenomenal. I believe in sticking with the couples and keeping them as your clients, even through the first year of marriage, so that you can get over those rough spots. We are mm -hmm. really working hard on two levels. One, to help these young people to find their helpmates, and two, to help them, um, I forgot two all of a sudden, two is to um, keep them, I'm, I'm, I'm totally blanked out on number two, what was the whole purpose, uh, to learn about themselves, how to communicate, whatever. The bottom line is, is that you, she, you know, we really want to make sure that they will fit with one another. And she believes that neurodiverse does not have to marry neurodiverse. She feels that if they can each learn about each other, it, it would be very, very uh, powerful. And um, I think it's, you know, so I, I really refer, I'm going to be referring a lot of my clients to her because she has a, I think she has a better handle on it. And like I said, I prefer to benefit my clients. It's not personal for me, you know. Um, so that's so very in the, in the coaching course that I was taking online, um, there was a woman who in the United States, she works in an ADHD center and she specifically does the work with, uh, with couples. Mm -hmm. And she says that nine times out of 10, they come because one person is complaining about the other person's ADHD. And it turns out that actually both of them have ADHD because there might be people who are listening to us that don't know, but, but ADHD in a woman presents itself often very differently than it does in a man. And the biggest difference is that now people don't say ADD anymore. They say ADHD because they believe that the hyperactivity is on, is outward for a man. In other words, it shows from the outside and with women, it's mostly in people's heads. It's on the inside. And we, we find ways to mask uh, the hyperactivity on the inside or ways to compensate that men don't. And so very often, again, you know, two people will come to the ADHD center and one person has been assessed and then the other person is assessed and very often they will have ADHD. And also if you, if you know somebody with ADHD and you ask them very often when they're in a crowd of people and they'll gravitate towards one person in the room, that person will also be neurodiverse as well too. So very often they, they do gravitate towards each other. I mean, other. that's how it started. My young men said to me, we really want to be with people who are neurodiverse so they'll understand us. But that doesn't right. necessarily mean they will because no. they because of the differences of each person. Um, so, okay, so let's just review. So we have the ADHD mom who has the executive, executive function uh, disorder. She's not timely. She procrastinates. She gets overwhelmed very easily. She's got to get her kids up and out at a certain time because of the reg, you know, because school's regulated. And then she has to remember to pick them up. So um, one of the things that I introduced to a lot of my clients is the ADHD watchminder. The watchminder, it's not easy to process. I mean, it's not easy to set up, but it's a fantastic tool. It's a watch. It has nothing else but reminders and there are like 30 pre-recorded reminders and it's a it only it works on vibration. 
So what happens is that, you know, you can actually add your own customized messages, but it reminds you to take your pills, it reminds you to go to the doctor, it reminds you to do this, you know, remember to relax, breathe, um, you know, if you need to clean up, if you need this, you need that, but it also says pick up the kids. And I, uh, I find it to be a fantastic um, little, you know, tool, and that's part of it. So there's also the time timer. So the time timer works backwards. It doesn't work the same as a clock. It does. It shows you how much time you have left to teach the brain because people don't realize what is time management. Really what it is, is that if you say to somebody, don't look at a clock, call me back in five minutes. Well, they don't know what five minutes is. They don't have intrinsic sense of time. Um, the, the time blindness, we call it time blindness. I'm blindness, but it goes even mm -hmm. further. I was fascinated in our conversation yesterday. Uh, we met with Jody Carlton, who's, uh, a, you know, a, she has an MED, and she spoke of the fact that her daughter has, as ADHD, has no sense of hunger. She doesn't feel it at all until she has cramps. Her son's mm -hmm. lips turn blue before he realizes that he's cold. So, I, I mean, that's opening up a whole nother part of this that I really never knew before, that that's another issue that you're not sensing it. So here we have this mom. So again, the sympathy goes to the mom that we want to teach her to have strength, that she should stand on her own two feet, but that she, but there has to be priority. Um, don't worry so much about the closets right now. Let's make sure the kids are well taken care of because really, truly, there is this need for you know, proper teaching so the kids come home from school, they have to have their books, they have to know what their homework is, and, and mom has to be on top of it. So I actually wrote a guide on that one. I wrote a guide on organizing your home and on um, homework study. And uh, I have that on for free right now on my website. We're gonna soon be selling that stuff. But it's important because it's a great step-by-step -step guideline. Like things like, Really interesting, and you would appreciate this. There's the Goderi, um, it's a tote, and it has, it's really meant for artwork, but you can put everything in it. You could put the stapler, the, you know, the tape, the pens, the paper and ruler and all the things that one might need for studying. So mm -hmm. we all know that nobody really studies at their desks anymore. They study at the kitchen table or the living table, I mean, dining table, because they want to be near mom. So uh, they, if mom has this in the closet, she just pulls it out and the ADHD child is not procrastinating by wasting time and running around looking for all these components that they need. So that's one way. The other is that, I don't know if you have this in France, most of our textbooks are now online. So if a child forgets a textbook, you can just go online now. And that's a fantastic um, you know, component to learning because... A lot of times the kids forget their textbooks. Yeah. So there's two things that are important. The first thing about that, that watch that gives you reminders. I think that's a fantastic tool that I haven't heard about. And I'm going to pass that on. I've already got four or five people in my mind that I think that would really benefit from that. What I think is important about that is that it doesn't happen on the phone because very often people want to put apps and things on their phone and then they right. get caught up with something else on the front. I mean, we, it happens to everybody. It happens to me. If I think about something, oh, well, even if I hear the alarm on my phone go off, I'm going to go to my phone to turn off the alarm, but 
am I going to do what my reminder told me to because I see that somebody else sent me a text message, et cetera. So it's those distractions. And I find also too, that that's very challenging for kids because very often on their computers or their iPads or whatever, depending on the age of the child, if the books are online, then there's also other information at the bottom of my screen right now, I'm talking to you, Debbie, and I see that there's WhatsApp. I see that I have three notifications on my WhatsApp. So there's things that are stopping me from clicking on that, but what's stopping a kid who has issues with impulsivity from clicking on that or an adult as well too. So I think that that's important to, to recognize. Um, but I, I like all of your suggestions for the mom. Um, I also like to think about this idea about the, the minimum mandatory or mandatory minimum, mandatory minimum, I guess sounds better. Um, in France, you would kind of sw switch, swap those two words around. Um, and it's basically a mom who has ADHD being forgiving of herself and being accepting of her challenges and just saying, what is the minimum that my child needs right now to get out the door? And it's not like, oh God, there's a bake sale and I've got to make the most perfect um, you know, cupcakes with the cherry on top. No, it's not that. It's literally just getting my child out this morning. Too bad for the cupcakes. <laughs> They'll have to wait. Yeah, and, and you thought that I was clean. And you know, I'm the mom who bought the cupcakes because there was no way I was baking those and I could care less. <laughs> well, well, there you go. Well, that's that's the thing. You could care less, but somebody else who yeah. has issues yeah. with emotional regulation because of the executive functioning Self -esteem. skills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly is going to think, well, the other moms are all doing that. And so they're going to judge me because I don't show up with those perfect cupcakes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, yeah it's, it's complicated. It's complicated to have ADHD, but it definitely is more complicated once you become a mom. Sure. When I introduce myself, I say the word, um, my name is Debbie Unconventional Ginsburg. <laughs> I'm very unconventional. unconventional. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I wrap this up because we have so much we could talk about all of this. And I think that um, the tools, as we mentioned, are a very important component to all of this. Um, and of course, that if moms would, we didn't discuss this yet, if everybody would recognize we're not machines and that we need to chunk it to smaller, smaller, smaller time frames. So for instance, I tell my clients, um, you want to work on your closet, great, 10 minutes, put on the time timer, 10 minutes only, and put on your headphones and listen to music. So you associate a chore with something fun. And the other thing is, is that today, incredibly, we're able to manipulate our computers so that we only are looking at what we need to look at and we don't get the distractions. There are many filters involved. Um, I agree with you 100,000%. I don't want kids on smartphones. I find that laptops, smartphone, internet, all of that is a tremendous distraction. But same thing I would say to moms, just give your child 10 minutes on any one subject, let him decide. And then a two minute break. So the two minute break, which uh, we are going to talk about is in terms of optimizing the brain. The two minute break is hydrating, protein, stretching, breathing. Okay. You could alternate, but that two minutes is humongous because they can only their capacity, their brain capacity start, they start to shut down. And we know boredom causes them to shut down. Anxiety causes the brain to shut down. So we really want our young people to do the 10 minutes and then they can say to themselves, and then there's one, <laughs> I always have all these tips. Um, they can say to themselves, do I want to continue with what I'm doing? Or does my brain need to switch tasks to do another subject? Um, I always recommend a spiral notebook next to every child 
that they're doing homework. So they write down exactly what they were doing before they take the break. They should do it as soon as they start something. So when they're finished with the break, they can remember where was I? Because that is a very big issue they don't remember. So yeah, those are the kind of things that, you know, um, my professional, as a professional organizer, uh, we learned about this and, um, and in applying it, we see that it really helps kids feel better because we limit the amount of time they do homework. And we say to them, you are not to be an expert in every field. You're going to excel in some. You're not going to do great in others. It's part of life. School is a necessary evil. And you will get through it. And you could still be a phenomenal productive adult. And just build them, build them up, build them up. I love you unconditionally. It doesn't matter. Your grades are not reflective of who you will be. But building up. Parents of neurodivergence said that kind of thing, first of all, felt it and then believed it and said it to their children, the world will be a much better place. Of course. So that's why we try to teach the emotional intelligence. An EQ, a higher, an EQ that's higher than a, you know, an IQ is going to take you further. It's been proven. Okay. I was a terrible, I wasn't a terrible student. I was an average student, just an average student. And my, my siblings are geniuses, literally. And I just, I didn't have it in me. I didn't care. I wanted to have fun. You know, and I ended up, I started to I get my act together because we all pick ourselves up by 11th, 12th grade. Oops, we got to go to college, Oops, you know, and uh, you go to college and then you start to say, wait a minute, I'm going to have to work. So I'm going to start to really get my, you know, my act together because I need to to excel. And um, it didn't hurt for me to have a boyfriend who ended up being my husband through college who kept saying, Debbie, do this, work harder, you know. But I ended up on Dean's List when a child who was on a provisional going into college. And I have no shame talking about it because from the time I was 20, what, eight, when I started my first business. And I literally started the business on my own, no business education, intuitive, emotional EQ. So I always say to my clients, the world is your oyster. You just have to believe in yourself and you have to trust your instincts. And that's the way it goes. So I love speaking to you. This was a great topic. And um, I will speak with you again afterwards. I wanted to, I would ask you to hold on. So we we are uh, oh, I wanted to make a, an announcement, a commercial announcement. I don't normally do this, but this is really very special. This is for uh, New York. It's called Sisters Corner. Girls with Special Needs Siblings Unite, which is fantastic. So there's a teen hotline. It's 641-715-3800. And the code is 557130. And then there's the number sign at the end. The junior hotline is 641-715-3800, same number. The code for that one is 715-426 with a number sign after that. So you could also reach them at specialsisterscorner at gmail.com. And I, I promote it because it's so important, which is another conversation I'm going to have with somebody about the siblings and the effect on siblings when you have a sibling who has ADHD, because just like you have in a marriage, relationships um, are really thrown off when you don't really understand it. So I thank you all for listening to uh, to our episode 15. I am excited that we're really 
moving and grooving in these episodes and, and, and we have so many to offer you. So if you have enjoyed this, I ask kindly that you share it. Also, if you have any questions or feedback, um, you know, you can get in touch with me. It's uh, info at organize, the letter U, the number four, life.com. Thank you for joining us.